Okay, then. Ron Wolfley. Ron Wolfley. What is up? <laughs> Witch buster. Extraordinaire. Love that guy. Luke Lipinski. Yay. Wolf and Luke. Arizona Sports. The local sports leader. Live from the Auction Community Studios on this Friday morning, it is the Wolf and Luke Show. I'm Luke. You're not Wolf. Who are you? <laughs> Definitely not Wolf. <laughs> I could do the rest of the show in Wolf's voice if we really could need you, to. Do you think you could do four no, hours? No, I actually, I said that and then I immediately regretted it. Uh, Steve Zinsmeister is here. Steve, why don't you tell the people what you do since you do uh, everything? How long now. do you have? Uh, we have, well, we only have two hours with you because you have to go do something All else. All right, it might it might take the whole two to explain. Uh, no, I uh, do a show here on 98.7 on the weekends with Mitch Vareldis. It's called Arizona Sports Saturday. It's 11 to 1 on Saturdays. I fill in occasionally like I am right now. I was in with Gambo on Friday. I'm in with you now. Uh, I'm over on KTAR News constantly. I'm all over the place, man. I'm just trying to figure out how similar this show is going to be for you, this experience to working with Gambo on Friday. I want to make it identical. I, good luck with that. <laughs> Let me see if I can do that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yes, Your so efforts are probably better elsewhere. <laughs> Steve's going to be here for the first two hours, and then we're not going to tell you who's going to be here for the second two hours. Oh, surprise host. Even when he's here, we're not going to tell you. Oh, that could be fun. No. You distort the voice. Tell you. It's going to be Shane Doan. Like a Dateline piece? Yeah, yeah <laughs> the whole time. Shane Doan will be here for the, uh, the final half of the show. Steve is here for the first half, though. And Steve, this is perfect, because we've been talking a lot of Kevin Durant, but I haven't got to talk about it with you at all. So let's just start there. Your initial reaction to what we saw on Wednesday, and if you are expecting anything different tonight in Chicago. i got to be honest with you. I didn't expect Kevin Durant to play 27 minutes. I thought it would be somewhere like 15 to 20, and I thought they would kind of ramp it up from there. Yeah. Um, because, I, I, again, being honest, I don't really care how many wins and losses there are from here to the end of the season. I think I expect the Suns are probably going to be in the middle of the pack somewhere. They're not catching the Nuggets, but they're not as bad as the Lakers. They're going to be somewhere in the middle. Just don't drop out of the top six, the whatever win- you do there. I agree with you. The, the wins and losses matters less to me than how the team gels during the course of the next 19 games, yes. 20 games with Kevin Durant, hopefully, 100%. all things going well. Um, so I was a little surprised he played 27 minutes. Not surprised at how he played or how effective they were when he was on the court. Um, but I, I I think that in the next game, I expect him to play roughly 25. I mean, he played 27 minutes. 25 to 30 doesn't seem out of the realm of possibility. You got a, probably what you would consider a bigger game against the Mavericks after that. The Bulls, it's kind of similar to the Hornets. It's like if you're up 20 at halftime or if you're up 20 and going into the fourth quarter, do you really want to play that guy? No, I mean, it's a fine line because you, you want to get him, you want to get him some reps with his new team and you want to get these guys reps with him, which I think is probably the bigger part of that. He can fit in wherever he's already shown that. But, you know, how, how does the starting lineup look with Josh Akogi and Kevin Durant and Devin Booker and Chris Paul and DeAndre Ayton? Cause we just haven't. We haven't. We didn't even see their old starting five play together much this season. It was five five full games all season. Yeah. Um, but I hear what you're saying. I mean, the biggest thing is: is he ready to go? And has this team gelled by April 16th when the playoffs start? That's really all that matters. Yeah. I mean, look at the super teams of the past, or teams that acquire big names like this. I mean, there's 
times where it's clicked immediately, where, you know, you go and acquire a player and you just take over the world. The Celtics in 08, you know, they just gelled immediately and didn't lose games. When KD went to the Warriors, I don't think they lost a game that whole season. No, if they, they did, I blink. and 0 and then 16-0 in the playoffs. Um, but there's examples, right? Like in 2010, where Miami goes and gets all three of their big stars. And it took them some time. They went 9-8 and before they went on a 12-game winning streak to start that season. Wait, did you do research for the show? Was I not supposed to? <laughs> not I mean, I found out I was here. doing the show about an hour ago, and I wrote some stuff down. <laughs> what are you but, doing, doing research? Uh, 1996, the Lakers go and get Shaq. They went 10-6 and six in their first 16 games. That's not otherworldly. It's it's decent. Uh, 2019, the Clippers get Kawhi. They go 7-5 and five in their first 12 games. So, so I guess the only my, 12 games he's played with them, actually. Well, yeah, and actually, I don't know if he played all of them. First 12 games that they had Kawhi so Leonard. So probably sat like six of them. Just yeah, because. and they probably lost all those. Yeah. So they were probably 7-0. and oh. But... <laughs> I guess my point is not every team that acquires a player of this caliber gels immediately, so I'm not expecting that. Yeah. But you only have 19 games to do it. Yeah, and that's the thing. You know, you, you look and you can have the conversation. You can say, well, they got three three more years of KD, and that's that's great, and that's true. And I Hopefully I they gel by then. Fully <laughs> expect KD to still be good for three years, but how many years do you have where KD is in his prime and Chris Paul is still Good, you know what I mean. Like you, you have this year. Nothing, nothing beyond this season is guaranteed. When you start to look at the whole combination of Booker and Chris Paul and Kevin Durant and DeAndre, and you have it right now. So this isn't like a hey, let's see how it goes this year, and we'll really ramp up for next year or really, you know, lock no. in next year. Now, you and I were talking before the show, and we'll get into this later on in the show. But the the concern, if you have one, I mean, those are going to start to come out here at some point. Of okay, this can't. It's not going to be that easy, right? They really haven't backed up Chris Paul unless campaign is going to be campaign from two years ago and, and, and is guaranteed to not get hurt or Chris Paul's guaranteed to not get hurt. Um, as far as tonight, though, specifically with KD, I feel like what he did the other night was at 23 points in 27 minutes and, and he looked indefensible in a lot of those. I mean, that that's just him. That's I don't. He's not going to look any different. That's he's been so consistent with that his entire career. Well, and it's like if you put if you're at the YMCA playing with the boys and KD shows up, no team is going to be like, how do we fit Kevin Durant into our squad? You know what I mean? Like, and I know the NBA is a different story, but uh, the fit I'm not too worried about. If you watch the game, you know exactly how well he fits with this team. They're going to live at the elbow. They're going to. I mean, other teams should probably just put one defender at the free throw line and just keep them there because I, I that's, thought they were going to do it two years ago when Chris Paul was just open on every shot until the Milwaukee series and nobody did. It's a good point, Milwaukee. And, and if you do that, that the part that, that kills you about the Suns is if you do that as a defense, then all of a sudden Chris Paul becomes an amazing three point shooter, yeah. and Devin Booker is a sniper, and Kevin Durant obviously not or Aiden's just wide open underneath the hoop. I mean the the the, the setup here that they have, at least on paper, and now it's becoming less and less on paper, and actually we're seeing it on the court, doesn't seem defendable. It, it just it doesn't. Now, Charlotte not being able to stop them means nothing. Let's see what they do against Milwaukee and Boston and Denver, but you you brought up Dallas since that game is coming up on Sunday. That one, to me, is, is, is of interest, not just because Dallas keeps beating the Suns, but because they have seemingly had an answer for them and, and, and known how to stop them since, what, game six of the playoffs last since year? Since Luka Doncic became a basketball player? Yeah, I mean... <laughs> I don't know, but they owned, the Suns owned them before that playoff it's series. It's true. No, it's, it's fair. It's a fair point. I, I think, in particular, with the, the Mavericks, what makes that so interesting, and I, I actually am more interested in the KD versus Kyrie for the first time. Uh, that game's got everything. That narrative it, it matters more to me than the Suns versus the team that knocked them out in the playoffs. Just because I think both teams are so dynamically different. 
I just want to see how different the Suns look because the last few times they played Dallas, it felt like when the Cardinals play the Rams and the Rams like, we know what you're going to do. It, it felt like Dallas knew what the Suns were going to do. So if is it just KD adding so much more talent that the Suns will be better? Or is it do the Suns now have options to throw different looks at Dallas? Well, but it goes both ways because Kyrie... Because he's been there long enough. I mean, they got traded around the same time, but Kyrie's played more games in Dallas than KD has in Phoenix. They've had more time to figure it out over there. I'm pretty sure KD or Kyrie's already played more games in Dallas than he played in, in Brooklyn, Brooklyn with yeah, like the three of them together. Here's uh, Kevin Durant after the game earlier this week talking about how he feels like he fit in in his first game. I feel like I fit in pretty well. Um, Everybody, everybody out there was trying to make me as comfortable as possible, coaches and players as well. And, you know, so um, just got to keep keep grinding, man. And, you know, this this jersey on me will look normal in a couple, you know, as games go on, as we start to keep building who we are as a team. And um, I'm looking forward to it, though. Honestly, it's weird to hear Durant talk this much. You know what I mean? I've heard him so much in the last week, and you feel like it's the kind of guy who doesn't like talking. He Anytime I've ever heard like a, a really good interview with Katie, and I've heard some really good ones, but they're all long form, and they're all like an hour. David long. Letterman, yeah, or something. Yeah. I actually haven't seen that one. You haven't yet. seen that and, one. And Bloom told me to watch it like two weeks ago on the show, and I still haven't. So hopefully Bloomer's not listening. I'll watch it before the game tonight. But um, but just any like podcast that he has hosted or been on that are a good hour long or whatever. But these quick little like sound bites that are like two minute interviews or whatever that doesn't seem to be what KD was built for because I've just never heard it before. And yet, I mean, he's obviously doing just fine with it. Uh, all right, when we come back, we'll flip over to football. Darren Urban, the senior writer for your Arizona Cardinals, is out at the Combine. We're going to catch up with him next. It's Wolf and Luke, Steve Zinsmeister, in for Wolf on Arizona Sports, the local sports leader. Wolf and Luke Middays, Arizona Sports, the local sports leader. All right, we got the combine coming up. Uh, well, it's going on right now. We got free agency coming up here in just over a week. The draft in under two months. So the offseason for the Cardinals remains extremely busy. And Darren Urban, the senior writer for azcardinals.com, is out at the combine and joining us on the Arizona Sports Line right now. Darren, thank you for the time. What's going on? How are you guys doing? Doing pretty good. Steve uh, Zinsmeister is in for Wolf today, so you will probably not get nearly as many fullback questions. I don't know if you were. <laughs> That's probably fair. Good to talk to you, Steve. What's up, Darren? Uh, all right, so let's uh, let's let's start here and I, just go big picture with the draft and how important it is for this team with Monty Austin Fort and you know his background with the Patriots and, and liking to build through the draft and that's kind of where the Cardinals uh, are right now. Um, just in general, Darren, not even just the third pick. What do you think are are the top you know maybe two or three spots that the Cardinals are looking to address in this draft? Well, I think both Monty Ford and Jonathan Gannon have talked a couple of times about the need to uh, to beef up both sides of the line of scrimmage, the offensive line and the defensive line. I don't think that's any question. It doesn't surprise me uh, kind of in the direction that the Cardinals went with, with Ford and what his background is and kind of where the Cardinals have been. The offensive line was never – uh, once in a while, you got a high pick for an offensive lineman, but usually Steve Kime was not using high picks on offensive linemen, and it, and it's it, it's cost them over the years in terms of where they are with the line right now, and maybe some youth, and and not always having to fill in the gaps with free agents, and so I think that's something that's necessary as well as 
Obviously, with J.J. Watt retiring, a defensive line that could use some help, uh, especially not knowing for sure what happens with Zach Allen. So I, I think those are two spots that need to be looked at. And I think uh, cornerback uh, with Byron Murphy going into free agency and some other questions back there in terms of your overall depth, I think that's another spot you need to look. And then uh, you're still always going to be concerned about premium positions. And, and that's why edge rusher is something that catches everybody's attention, especially at number three overall, whether it's a Will Anderson or a, a, a Tyree Wilson or something like that, where um, you can get somebody who potentially could get you double-digit sacks on a, on a year, annual basis and, and make a big difference. I think those, those spots right now, uh, are probably front of mind, but I, I think also with the roster they have, uh, they got a lot of leeway to go in a lot of directions because they could use a lot of talent. Darren, the uh, talk of the combine is the legal situation that Jalen Carter finds himself in. He's obviously one of the top prospects in this draft. Does his legal situation throw a bit of a wrench into the Cardinals' plan with that first pick they have at number three, or does it maybe clear a few things up for them? Well, I, it's hard to know because I don't know exactly where the Cardinals have Jalen Carter in the first place. Um, you know, there's still things that need to get done in terms of visits and interviews, and I'm not sure. I I was figuring that they were going to meet with Jalen Carter out here uh, at some point. I know he returned to, to finish up his interviews. I, I think it could make it easier in some ways. I, look, ultimately, I think the quarterbacks are what, really change where the Cardinal, what the Cardinals do at number three. Because the quarterbacks, if the Bears don't take a quarterback and they take a defensive player with that first overall pick, then you're almost guaranteed, in my mind, you're going to end up trading because uh, somebody's going to want to give you something for that third pick to get one of those quarterbacks. If the Bears trade out and the quarterbacks go 1-2, I think it becomes a little bit more interesting. But if the quarterbacks go 1-2, you've got Will Anderson or maybe Carter, but I'm guessing with what happened with Carter, Will Anderson jumps ahead. Uh, then you have the choice to take Anderson there, or you could still trade down. I mean, the other thing we don't know, and I just posted a story about this uh, on azcardinals.com, is you figure Young and Stroud are going to be the first two quarterbacks off the board. But we, I, I saw a mock draft ahead, I think, uh, uh, Levis at, six and Anthony Richardson at 18, but, but so much can happen. And would I be completely stunned if enough teams were willing to come up into the top five or top six, take one or both of those guys too. I mean, that's, that's, that's what you end up running into with these quarterbacks. I'm not saying that's a lock by any stretch of the imagination, but and it's one of the reasons why it's tough right now to get a good idea of what the Cardinals might be facing in number three, because quite frankly, I think most of these questions are not going to be able to be answered until we're literally on the clock that Thursday night when the draft opens. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. Darren Urban of azcardinals.com joining us right now, uh, kind of building off that, Darren. Do you think there's a preference internally? I mean, obviously a player like Will Anderson would be great for a team with a defensive head coach that, I mean, all of a sudden you have a strong defense uh, potentially if you add somebody like that, whether it's you know Will Anderson or whoever. Uh, or do you think there's a preference that they hope that there is still one of those quarterbacks on the board so that they can trade because there's more than just one hole to fill on this roster? Well, I mean, I don't know for a fact. I would say if I'm them, the preference is that Anderson is on the board. Uh, well, I, I would say 
I would say their preference would be to Anderson be on the board and somebody would still want to be trading up to number three to give them all the options. Yeah. That's what I think their ultimate preference would be. Now, if their preference, if you're saying it's one of the other ones, which is Anderson's there and both quarterbacks are gone, lessening the potential for you to trade down, uh, that I don't know. I mean, obviously, I feel like the the – the the decision is almost made for you if Anderson goes ahead and then there's a quarterback on the board. I think you're you're almost locked into trading with somebody because there could be quite a haul, but I'm sure that's what the Bears want right now. I mean, the Bears, I'm sure, would rather just trade out of that pick and get some big uh, group. And the, and the question just becomes what who's willing to come up to one or three, and then you got to also determine if you're one of those teams how far back you're willing to go and uh, you know, if the Panthers are the ones that are offering a good uh, a good package, but they're at number nine, are you willing to drop all the way to nine if you're either of these teams? So, I mean, that's that's part of the that's part of the give and take that goes through all this stuff. I kind of feel because of all these trade possibilities that Monty Ossonfort and the front office, their conversation with other teams at the combine might carry more weight and be more important than even some of the individual player conversations that they have. Do you agree with that? I think there's something to that. Again, there's only so much that can happen at this point because people don't know. I mean, can can somebody go and, and put a bug in Monty's ear that, hey, if such and such quarterback is there when you guys are picking at three, go call us because we will absolutely have a package for you. Yeah, um, but but in terms of what we might be able to be willing to give up and all that stuff, I'm not sure that's necessarily going to happen at this point. Um, but I mean, Monty's been around this game long enough. I mean, that it's just natural. I mean, I'm on the outside looking in. I don't talk to any of these teams internally like these guys are, and it's not hard to kind of decipher where this might be going. Uh, and I'm not special in any way, shape, or form. Many people can kind of do that. So I mean, this is this is just where it goes. It's a quarterback-driven league. Quarterbacks are, are are what make and break teams ultimately, and if you can, you need to try and get one when you have a chance high up in the draft. Darren Urban of azcardinals.com joining us live from the combine. Uh, Darren, outside the draft, the part of this offseason now that really fascinates me is free agency coming up. Because it, at least through the draft, if you're rebuilding, you're going to take the best player that fits a need. I, like, I, I get all that, but as far as free agency, which is before the draft, how are the Cardinals planning on approaching that? Because it's not like you're going to go out and just grab a couple vets to fill a couple holes and think you're a Super Bowl contender. You kind of have to have the draft in mind while you're approaching free agency, don't you? Well... I would say that's true to a point. Um, I, I think every year it's a little bit more difficult in terms of I mean, you, you're just not going to know who you're going to end up in the draft with in the draft, and you don't know what direction that's going to go. I think with the where the Cardinals are right now, I would not be completely stunned if they – first of all, it's not like they're going to have a ton of money to spend. Um, they have a decent amount of cap space as it seems like it stands right now, but they also have a billion roster uh, spots to fill, whether they re-sign their own guys or they go out and get somebody else. So once you, once you just have the basic minimum number of players, they don't have a lot of cap space. So um, I don't know how much they're going to go after it. I think some of it's going to have to do with some of the decisions they make with the roster. Like if they decide ultimately to trade DeAndre Hopkins, do they just take that cap? hit and and absorb that all at once and and make sure that it's you know off the books and and if 
that happens and you, you eat that all this year, well, then you're, you're costing yourself, obviously, uh, not only a player, but you're costing yourself a bunch of cap space. So I, I think free agency is going to be about being smart with a couple of, of spots, but um, I don't see them doing a bunch of splashy moves for this year because it, in a lot of ways it just doesn't make sense in the long-term plan. Darren, do the Cardinals regret their best player available strategy they've used in the draft? And, and what I mean by that is, for example, last year they draft a tight end at 55 overall, I think it was, in the second round. Uh, a good player by all accounts, but you already had two pretty good tight ends, whereas you could have taken a foundational player at a more key position. We heard Michael Bidwell on this station last week talk about, we need to start focusing on the key positions, on corner, on pass rusher, on offensive line. Do they regret the draft strategy that they've had in the past? Well, I mean, uh, regret's a strong word. I mean, ultimately, they made a change at the GM position. So, yeah, I mean, they moved on from what they were doing. They felt like it wasn't the right thing to do. I, I You know, the, the tight end thing was a little bit different to me. Um, you say they had two good tight ends. When they drafted Trey McBride, they didn't know if Max Williams was ever going to play football again. So I think at that point, not knowing beyond Zach Ertz what you had at tight end and you had a chance to get this really talented guy, I think that made a lot of sense. I don't have a big problem with that. Um, now, when you talk about getting premium positions, I think that's a, it's a fair argument. But but if you have holes at a certain position, um, they they all end up being more premium than you'd like them to be. Um, you know, no one's going to sit out there and say most of the time offensive guard is a premium position, except when you start having holes there and you start having problems there, all of a sudden it becomes a heck of a lot more important. But most of the time, no team is, is looking to say, hey, let's go draft a guard in the first round. So I, I think the bigger problem with what they've done is this, they just haven't hit on enough picks as we've gone through the years. And that's that's the biggest problem. The best player available was always kind of a misnomer anyways because best player available, when they were putting those draft boards together, need always factored into how they rank those players. So there was always a, a certain amount of need that was factored into those and 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 made an impact on their on their on their draft board. So there there was that. But yeah, it's gonna be a little bit different with Monty. It'll be a little bit different with Monty next year especially because I think this year is going to be more of a hybrid because they, they just can't change it all overnight. It, it's gonna take a little time. Darren, great stuff as always, man. We appreciate the time. Thank you. All right. See you guys. That's Darren Urban, senior writer for azcardinals.com, joining us right there on the Arizona Sports Line from the Combine. Text us your thoughts to the FanDuel text line at 620-620 right now. When we come back, our critics putting an unfair standard on Kevin Durant because Katie has responded. It's Wolf and Luke. Steve Zinsmeister's in for Wolf today on Arizona Sports, the local sports leader. Wolf and Luke, Arizona Sports, the local sports leader. Hi, welcome back to the show. It is Wolf and Luke on a Friday morning. Steve Zinsmeister is in for Wolf. 
Do you have any comments on Paramore? Because when uh, my girlfriend just went and saw them like two weeks ago, okay, they were here for you know all the Super Bowl festivities. Yeah. Basically, every band in America was every here for like two here. weeks. Yes, <laughs> and they're still here actually this weekend for M Three Fest. Not Paramore, but every other band that was. Is M Three going on this week? It's, I think it's going on today. I emceed that festival last year. You emceed M Three? I did. Wow, look at that. They did not ask me back. I don't know. <laughs> That says they didn't me, even tell you what was going on. I don't know why I set my up, myself up for that failure just then, but <laughs> it's a good, good, good story though. Yeah, I did uh, it so well that they did not invite me back. What does emceeing M three fest entail? Like, were you? It's kind of wild, actually, because it's a full day. Yeah, and I'm only on stage for about a minute once an hour. But you're you have to stay all day. Yeah. Oh, up. yeah. So are you introducing the bands or were, I guess Absolutely. I should say, past tense with you? Now, yeah, I was doing it this year. I was not currently, not currently employed by them. <laughs> I do a lot of jobs in this building specifically. That's good. Yeah. You only need one job. Uh, uh, all right. Uh, Kevin Durant, his his arrival brings a lot more attention for the Phoenix Suns and, you know, Valley sports fans are well versed in you have a good team and they you feel like they're just they get disrespected or they don't get enough attention and they don't get talked about nationally and, and you know we made the joke earlier this season and then as we were making the joke it popped up on one of these TVs they were talking about the Lakers and how much noise they could make and they were 14th in the West at that point I believe yikes and the Suns were this was you know when the Suns were doing pretty well before they got KD um, but now that you have Kevin Durant the spotlight's going to be on you. The rest of the season, at least, and we're gonna start to get a first-hand look at the criticism this guy gets. Which, from afar, I've never totally understood. I don't really follow a lot of professional athletes on Twitter, but KD, I always have, just because he is kind of a different guy. Steve, I've never understood why he responds to the critics on Twitter. He does. He likes to do it too. He like he likes to engage with yeah, the critics. Yeah, there was the whole burner account thing. I mean, Kevin Durant, for all intents and purposes, is a quiet dude. He doesn't do a lot of talking. You and I joked earlier that we've seen him speak more in the last week or two than maybe his entire time in Brooklyn. Yeah, uh, and maybe that's just a byproduct of the Matt Ishbia era. The whole we're going to hold a press conference, but it's really actually a rally slash party. That was that was a pep um, rally. I get the feeling Durant wasn't really the one asking for that. That that no. was a Matt Ishbia, let's go big idea. We already got the best player in the league over the last decade. Let's just make it a big deal. Probably smart, though, too, to be oh, like, yeah. hey, we've got, got Kevin Durant. Let's let some people in here. But to your point, why is he answering these questions? It's because he has he's being asked them constantly. Yeah, no, and... He's on every TV show... He does this podcast. He's on the, what is it called? The boardroom or yeah, whatever, which is basically LeBron's the shop his, thing. Yeah, that's his podcast network. That's why he's answering all these questions because he's, I mean, he's being asked more now than ever. I don't mind that so much. And look, he can do whatever he wants. I just don't understand why he responds to anytime he posts anything on Twitter. Anytime. Next time you see KD post anything on Twitter, if you haven't already done this, just click on the comments. The first comment back will be win a, a real ring. The second one will be like, you can't win a real ring. Win a That's, real ring. Yes. Like the two the one from Golden real. State doesn't count. The <laughs> they, two from Golden State. They got they gave him some from a vending machine or something. Right. Uh, but the criticism obviously follows him here. Here's Charles Barkley on first take earlier this week. If you go back and look at LeBron, who I really admire and respect, he said this. I did not say this. He says, I had to win a championship without Dwayne to get old heads respect. Kobe Bryant said this too. He says, I have to win a championship without Shaq to get these old heads off my back. I, I hold Kevin Durant to the same criteria. Mm. I don't care what the media says. I don't care what the fan says. I'm talking about old guys like myself who went through the trenches. 
Kevin Durant going to have to before. Like, hey, he's all time great. But when it comes to being mentioned with some of these other guys, he's going to have to win a championship where he's the leader of the team and he's the best player. So here's the thing I would say, Steve. It's just my opinion. If the Suns win the title this year, everybody here is going to get it. Every Suns fan is going to get it. Suns have never won a title. This is not a super team. Devin Booker, not a traditional super team. Devin Booker was drafted here and stayed through the dark times. And when they traded for Chris Paul, nobody wanted Chris Paul. So it's this is not three players getting together in the offseason and saying, hey, where do we want to play basketball and form a team? And like 10 months ago, nobody wanted DeAndre Ayton. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> like except, less than except that. Indiana. Indiana. Well, yeah, right. Exactly. Uh, but my theory is that even if the Suns win the title, Suns fans will get it like, hey, this is this is huge. Uh, Kevin Durant will be immortalized here. I still think nationally, these people who didn't think the Suns were that great before will be like, well, yeah, he went there and won with with Devin Booker and DeAndre Ayton and Chris Paul. Listen, my big thing is the Suns don't need Kevin Durant to be a leader. First of all, Chris Paul's pretty much got that covered on his own. Devin Booker, I don't think he's a very vocal leader kind of guy. I think he just lets his play do the talking. And, I kind of think KD is, too. Well, and I think that's part of the reason KD is here. I think he likes Devin Booker so much because he sees a lot of himself in him. Yeah. He just balls. That That's all those two guys really care about. And Devin Booker's motivated in the way that Kobe was motivated. He always just wanted to be better than you. That's all he really cares about. Why do we keep asking these passive human beings to be a leader? when they're not. Kevin Durant was never, he never won a championship when he was the best leader on the team. In Oklahoma City, who did he play with? He played with Westbrook and Harden. Neither of those guys are great leaders. And Even less so now that we've seen their right, careers evolve. In Brooklyn, Harden again, but then also Kyrie and Ben Simmons. Those guys aren't great those leaders. Those might be the worst leaders in the NBA. You want to know why he didn't win a world, uh, why he didn't win a championship in those two places but did in Golden State? Because in Golden State, he was the fourth best leader on that team behind Steve Kerr, Steph Curry, and Draymond Green. Why do we need uh, KD to win a title and be the, this amazing leader? We don't need that. Is, yeah, is, is Ky, uh, uh, Kyler Murray, are we ever expecting him to win a Super Bowl as the best leader on the Arizona Cardinals? No. I don't. No. And I don't know if that's a little bit different because I don't know if they're going to win a Super Bowl if he well, doesn't I, become one of the main leaders. Even if, but yes. if they had won the Super Bowl last year, would you have said he was the best leader on the team? No, you would have said J.J. Watt and Buda Baker are the best leaders on the I'm team. Trying to wrap my head around the concept of the 2022 Cardinals winning the Super Bowl. I know it was pretty far fetched. What just, I just went with. Okay, yeah. But the I, point I'm gonna still need stands, like an hour right? Like, why ask somebody to be something that they're not? That's fair. And uh, we'll get more into that later in the show because Monty Williams basically said the same thing. There's a story on Yahoo that goes through, and look, they're, they're still talking about KD's arrival in Phoenix and all that, but they did talk to KD about the criticism specifically from, from Charles Barkley there and from, from, from players, like former players, like older legends of the, of the game of basketball. And I'm going to read you part of the, uh, the, the quote. They, they kind of led him in a direction. They said, are they putting a, an unfair standard on you? KD's quote was uh, most definitely because at this point they're saying, go play with Scoot Henderson and win a championship, and then we'll give you credit. I don't need no credit from y'all. No credit from Barkley. No credit from Shaq. Y'all don't ever have to watch me play ever again. Don't talk about me if you don't. They put rock in parentheses. I don't know. Rock with me. I'm not going to stop doing what I do. Everybody has their opinions, man. I'm, it's not going to stop me and how I approach the game. Unquote. Now, there's, there's more. He talks about leadership, actually, in the story. But that right there specifically, um, <laughs> first of all, Cut to Scoot Henderson being like, what did I do? <laughs> yeah, what did I deserve to, to be thrown in the mix here? But but secondly, I, mean, I think to a certain extent, he's right. He's been one of the most criticized players in the NBA, and he's got rings. 
Well, you know what it is? These people are asking Kevin Durant to do what LeBron did. LeBron, when he won his two titles in Miami, mm-hmm. was he the best leader on that team? Well, I mean, it was Dwayne Wade's team. It's Dwayne Wade's team. Yeah. That's my point. Is LeBron was a weapon for hire, so to speak, for the Miami Heat. And I think that's why he only stayed four years. It wasn't until he went back to Cleveland, wins the title in 2016 as the leader of the Cleveland Cavaliers, that he, you know, quote unquote, redeemed himself or earned the value in the eyes of guys like Charles Barkley, who says, you got to be the leader. You got to be the guy on the championship team. Durant did the whole Miami Heat thing with the Warriors. Yeah. And I'm here to tell you that if he wins a title with the Suns, it's not going to be like LeBron when he won with the Cavs. No, it's not. But I think it's closer to that than LeBron winning with the Heat. And we can get back into this because I, to me, and I know, I mean, you like the Cavs, don't you? So like you, I do, you're going to yeah, have I'm a different. Cleveland, yeah. So but, unfortunately, but but for me, you said it, not me. Yeah. For me, that is that's LeBron's defining moment of his career, winning that title over the Warriors. But he was still the best player in the league before he won that title. So we can get back into this. Uh, win lower-level tickets to see Kevin Durant's first home game as a Sun. Nice. Just text KD to 62620 and enter for your chance to win lower-level tickets to see the Suns play the Thunder March 8th. And we'll just throw in two Kevin Durant jerseys, too. Why not? So text KD to 62620 when we come back. Did ASU's March Madness chances take a big hit with last night's lost UCLA? We'll get into that. It's Wolf and Luke. Steve Zinsmeister in for Wolf on Arizona Sports, the local sports leader. Like we always do with this town. Wolf and Luke. Arizona Sports, the local sports leader. Well, this will be fun. This is the... Uh, segment of the show where Steve has to talk me off the ledge with ASU basketball. You ready for that, Steve? I didn't tell you that until just now. Steve Zinsmeister in for Wolf. I knew this job was hard, but (laughs) (laughs) it's about to get harder. Yeah. Uh, Look, ASU basketball for me is like where I started calling their games in college. Like that's where this all started for me. So like ASU basketball always has a special place in my heart and they really bother me (laughs) because anytime they have a big win, it feels like they proceed to lose a bunch of games. Or at least not follow it up with a big win. And earlier this season, they were, you know, you're 11 and 1. You, you lose to San Francisco by 37. You lose to U of A, but that was a close game till the very end. They just couldn't hit a shot. And they came back and won four games. So I was like, all right, you're 15 and 3. You took a loss, but you came back. You, then they lose four straight, kind of get it back on track. Not like I expected them to go into UCLA and beat the number four team in the country, but they got hammered in that game last night and. You're back to being on the wrong side of the bubble. You can still get in, but you're on the wrong side of the bubble again. It's just a roller coaster, right? Because Always. I, was, I was doing the Every show year. with uh, Gambo, I think Friday of last week, when they had three games left. They had the U of A game uh, in Tucson. They had UCLA. And USC is on the road, too, at the end of the season. And mm-hmm. we kind of determined if you win one of those big games and then you win USC, you're probably looking at you could you could maybe make it in still. And hopefully that's still the case. But we didn't anticipate an 18-point loss. You didn't exactly put up your best fight in the UCLA game. As amazing as the Arizona win was in the dramatic finish, you're two seconds away from losing that game. Yeah. You know what I mean? So as great of a finish as that was, and as much as they deserve credit for winning in Tucson especially, at the same time, it's like any Hail Mary. I'm like, it's great that you won, but you were seconds away from losing. Yeah, and I guess to be fair, from my perspective, I'm 
I'm tying this to previous years with ASU basketball, and honestly, even football to a certain extent. It feels like when they win a big game, they followed up with a, a string of, of poor performances. On the surface, you beat U of A. Yes, it was. It was. It took a basically the basketball equivalent of a hail mary. But you were in the game all the way to the end. In in Tucson, you won the game, so you you win right. the game. You followed up with a loss to the number four team in the country. That's not reason for panic. And I'm not panicked. It's just now you basically have to beat USC. And you probably have to win a game in the Pac-12 tournament just to get in. And there was a time when this team was 15-3 and three and already had some good wins at that point. So how, how did we get here again? It's like you're in a position where you still have to prove yourself. You still have to convince committee members. You still have to convince people that you deserve to be there. Whereas if you even put up a decent fight and lose against UCLA, if you lose by 6, 7, Maybe some people are looking at this differently. Like the first game against UCLA. You lost UCLA the first game, but yet you were in that till the final minutes. So that was a very winnable game. The one last night was not. I, it, to your point about the roller coaster of emotions, uh, I've never felt more conflicted. Statistically speaking, this is one of Bobby Hurley's best seasons coaching ASU basketball. He's won two-thirds of his games. He's 20-10 and 10 this season. The only statistically better season was 2019. That was the time, the last time they went to the tournament. So if you don't make the tournament, there's an argument to be made that they need to start thinking about the future when it comes to the head coaching position. I don't want to get too heavy into that, but, I mean, you're in such a dynamic position. They could either be in the tournament or they could be on the outside looking in and possibly making big changes. Yeah, and the the problem with what you just said is that that is kind of a recurring theme. Like you, first of all, to be fair to ASU, the twenty twenty season was maybe their best team, and there was no tournament because of uh, because of COVID and all that happening right on in March, basically. I think that's fair. Yeah, um, and that that was a dangerous looking team. But I mean, you're right. It's it's just kind of every year. It's they get a few big wins. And you're like, all right, they, this is this is something. And then you lose some games, and part of your fan base is like, all right, maybe we need to make a change at coach. And look, that's that's life as an NCAA coach. I get that. Um, but you you still have a chance to do this this year. But now it's it's difficult. USC, you know, it's not just an automatic win that you're going to go in there and beat them. And I I don't even know if that is enough to get you in because of what you said earlier. You're constantly proving yourself if you're ASU. Like one of the other bubble teams is Michigan. ASU beat Michigan. They hammered them earlier this season. But if all things are equal, I'm not confident the committee would take ASU over Michigan because they're going to be like, oh, Michigan, they were good three years ago, so we have to take them. Around the country, if you proposed your team that you like has to play Michigan or ASU, the fans would pick, I want to play ASU every time because we know we can beat ASU. That's the mentality. You would hope the selection committee watches some basketball and is like, hey, Michigan hasn't been that great this year, but, but... it doesn't always work out that way. The teams with the tradition, and it's not like Michigan was good 50 years ago. They were good last year. The teams with the tradition tend to get the tiebreaker on Selection Sunday. It's the reason I kind of thought Alabama would squeak into the football playoff this past year over TCU. I still think they're going to squeak in and the championship's <laughs> over. It's already over and you're still anticipating it. But, I mean, it's the same thing, right? Like, TCU, they they always have to prove themselves. I'm speaking football yeah. right now for a second. TCU always has to prove themselves. Alabama doesn't. They got the best coach probably in college football history. They win championships every other year like the Patriots do. So uh, it it just made sense to everybody that Alabama would be in that conversation. It's the same sort of thing here, man. I I hate that they're always the ASU's always stuck in this position of we're down to the last game of the year and it matters and we have to prove ourselves. If you had just won a couple of I mean there's that game against Colorado uh, a week or two ago. You lose that one by eight to Colorado? Well, there's, I mean, there's a couple 
Yeah, there's that four-game losing streak that started with the first meeting with UCLA. That was close, and they ended up losing by 12, but that game was a lot closer than that. But then they followed up with a lost USC, Washington, Washington State. All of a sudden, you go from 15-3, and three and nobody can deny what you're doing because you're winning, what is that, five out of every six games? Right. So you're 15-7, and seven and you just fall back into the pack. And ASU's not going to get the tiebreaker in a lot of these falling back to the pack uh, scenarios. The other thing that's been tough with this team, and they've been a fun team at times, you just... It feels like you never know what you're going to get. You know what I mean? There's there's almost nobody they could be playing in the conference tomorrow where I'd be like, well, they're definitely going to win. They could beat almost anybody. They just beat U of A in Tucson. But they could also almost lose to anybody. So you never feel comfortable they're in until Selection Sunday's over and they're in. There's no consistency. No. I, there's not a lot. There's not a big track record here for me to go off of. I mean, yeah, beating U of A in Tucson is awesome. But losing to Colorado at home is pretty bad. So I mean, like it's what are you expecting in the in the tournament? Let's set expectations here, because and not just on a regular season uh, standard, but like what do we expect in the Pac-12 tournament? Where does ASU stand in the Pac-12? Well, reasonably now, now with that loss, see, you wanted to finish top four, and now with that loss, you've opened the door for other teams. Because at least if you're top four, one win in the in the Pac-12 tournament puts you in the semis. So you could point and say we were in the semis of the conference tournament. We won 22 games. Now it's like you've opened the door a little bit. I'm looking at, at Sports Illustrated's list right now. Uh, they have UCLA, U of A, and USC safely in from the Pac-12. They have ASU and Oregon on the bubble. Before the game yesterday, though, the the pretty common th- thought was UCLA and U of A are safely in. USC and ASU are on the bubble. So now... All of a sudden, USA, USC's moved ahead of, of the Sun Devils, and Oregon's right there with them. You've just you've opened the door, and again, I'm not piling onto a loss to UCLA because everybody loses to UCLA. But to your point, there were other games earlier this season that you could have taken care of business. It just adds up to you're still in it in March, which is what you're ultimately playing for. But they really can't lose again and until the semis of the Pac-12 tournament. USC's probably. a must-win game. Yeah. The first game, I agree with you. The first game of the tournament is a must-win game. After that, I don't want to say everything after that is, you know, icing on the cake, so to speak, but I think it's it's necessary to set realistic expectations. And by the way, in this last game of the season, USC has something to prove as well. That's that's the problem here. They're not coming into this game, you know, empty-handed either. They've got something to prove. They've got people to impress and and on a, some level, they're basically like ASU. They're have the similar scenario. That's why it's so big because the flip side to this is if you beat USC, you have that win over them. They're, I still think they're another bubble team, despite what this Sports Illustrated story says. But um, I, to me, like UCLA and U of A are in. And oh, then yeah. from the Pac-12, they'll probably get one or two more teams. But the loss puts you in a tie with Oregon for fourth in the conference. You want to finish top four. You, you've, just, you've opened the door for other teams. And Oregon closes out the season with Stanford. ASU's got USC. Maybe there, there is a scenario where you beat USC and then a bunch of other bubble teams lose, and you get in even losing your first Pac-12 tournament game. But I think realistically, if you beat USC and you you win your first Pac-12 tournament game, you'll get in. If you lose to USC, man, you probably got to win the tournament. Did you see the, I guess it was an apology of sorts from Cambridge after the game? Yesterday? Yeah, I want to say it was on Twitter, and I guess I shouldn't have brought it up without having it readily available to me, but... uh, (laughs) Basically, like, hey, as high as I felt after that game uh, against U of A, yeah. the shot that he makes at the end of the game, 
more than half court. He was as high as good as that was, and as high as I felt on that, I need to feel the losses just as much. I, I read it pretty positively. Like it, it felt like a real leadership tweet to me, and I'm hoping that they're taking that to heart and taking that into this game against USC. Yeah, no, that's fair, and that's it. it basically, is a a playoff game this weekend against USC. It's must win for sure. Uh, one when we come back, one NBA analyst still isn't buying that the Suns are the favorites in the Western Conference. We'll let him explain why. We'll get into it. It's Wolf and Luke. Steve Zinsmeister is in for Wolf on Arizona Sports, the local sports leader.